Um, all right, we're in Proverbs chapter 5, so uh, if you don't have an outline or a handout, raise your hand and one of these guys will get you one. Uh, otherwise, turn your Bibles to Proverbs 5. Let me pray for us, and then we will get into our text for the morning. God, we are very thankful for your grace, and we're thankful for the opportunity we have to study your word, and we're thankful for the clear instruction that we receive there, and how you have revealed yourself and your desires for us through, the, through your word. And so, just pray that as we come this morning to your word, that we would be humble in heart, that we would desire to see our lives changed and conform to your image. So we're just thankful for the time, and we pray all this in your name. Amen. On May 31st, 1889, the South Fork Dam, which held up the west side of Lake Connemouth, Pennsylvania, collapsed, and it sent 20 million tons of water crashing into the valley below. Now, at the time, uh, Lake Connemouth was uh, almost three miles wide, holding a little over 3.8 billion gallons of water. By the time it was all said and done, that 3.8 billion gallons of water went through the dam in an hour. For a temporary period of time, the flow rate through that dam was equal to the entire Mississippi River, right there. The force of the water was so great that as it was traveling down the Little Connemouth River Valley, it rose to about 70 feet high at the water face was going 40 miles an hour, 14 miles down the river toward Johnstown, Pennsylvania, okay? As it went, it was so destructive, it just wiped out everything in its path and took it with them. Sometimes it was disintegrating buildings just by touching them. Other times it was picking up whole buildings intact and carrying them for miles. One witness said that he watched the flood pick up a steam locomotive and throw it like it was chaff. That locomotive was found a mile from where it started. Eventually, the water hit Johnstown, Pennsylvania, completely decimated it. And when it was all said and done, 2,209 people were dead. 396 of them were children. If that wasn't tragic enough, there's another piece of the story. You see, the South Fork Dam was owned by the South Fork Hunting and Fishing Club. It was in a, an exclusive white-collar social club. Uh, had members like um, Andrew Mellon, Andrew Carnegie, Henry Clay Frick, those kind of guys. They had bought it and bought the property and, and turned it into a, a yacht club, essentially. Well, that club had recently contracted a local civilian contractor, a civil engineer, by the name of John Park. Now, John Park was hired to make some different drainage and, and improvements to the property and things. Well, Park woke up on that 31st, and he realized that the dam was in trouble. He could see the water cresting over the top already. So he urgently gathered several crews of men. They tried to dig spillways around the dam several different times, but after a couple hours, they realized there, there was nothing to be done. And so, in his desperation, Park jumped on a horse. He rode over to the, the town of South Fork, and he telegraphed down to Johnstown that the dam was about to burst. Johnstown received the warning, and they ignored it. Fifty-seven minutes later, the water hit Johnstown, essentially wiped it off the map, and 2,200 people died. So the question is, why? 
why would they ignore a clear warning that their lives and homes were in danger? And this is the most discouraging part of the story because the answer is because they had been warned before. You see, they knew about the dam. The dam was built with earth and wood. There was no American steel structure to support it. They knew that it was dangerous. They knew that it hadn't been maintained or repaired in almost a decade. Some of the locals even joked that the dam was like the sword of Damocles hanging over the head of Johnstown. But every spring when the rains would come, they would receive warnings that the dam might go, and it never did. And so when they received the call from John Park that the dam was about to collapse, they thought it wouldn't this time either. The moral of that particular story is pretty easy, right? They should have heeded the warning, or to make it more specific to what we're going to talk about today. It doesn't matter if the Bible tells us something over and over and over again. It doesn't make the temptation any less real. It doesn't make the danger any less real. The reality is, if God tells us to do something or warns us about something, we need to listen. I think what we're going to find in Proverbs chapter 5 today, many of you have heard sermons on before. And the question today is not, do you think sexual sin is bad or not? I think I could answer that for you. The question is, what are you going to do about it? And is your heart humble enough that you will actually heed the warning that Solomon gives to his sons here? Or it's very easy for us to be like the townspeople in Johnstown that said, oh, yeah, that's dangerous, that's bad, that could ruin our lives in a minute. We should really be careful. And then we're not careful. We need to be careful to listen to the warnings that God brings us in Proverbs 5. So that will bring us to our theme this morning. We must heed God's warning to flee sexual sin or we will face terrible consequences. Solomon spends Proverbs 5 begging his sons to listen to his warnings concerning sexual sin. Heed God's warning to flee sexual sin, or you will face terrible consequences. Now, Proverbs chapter 5 breaks down into three big sections. We're going to see the first section in verses 1 to 6. And we're going to call these the three warnings concerning sexual sin. The first warning that Solomon gives to his sons is knowing that the promise is too good to be true. The promise is too good to be true. If you have your Bible, grab your Bible and let's read Proverbs 5, verses 1 to 6 together. My son, give attention to my wisdom. Incline your ear to my understanding that you may observe discretion and, and your lips may reserve knowledge. For the lips of an adulteress drip honey and smoother than oil is her speech. But in the end she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death, her steps take hold of Sheol. She does not ponder the path of life. Her ways are unstable and she doesn't know it. Verse 1, Solomon is speaking to his sons, my son, give attention, pay attention. This is a command to them to listen to what he has to say. He says, you need to listen, give attention to my wisdom. 
Now, we've talked about wisdom a lot in the first couple chapters of Proverbs. Remember that wisdom is not just the being good at things in life, although that flows from it. Wisdom at its heart is being right with God, right? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So if we want to live life well, first we have to be right with God, and then we have to live life as God has intended for us to live life. And so here he calls his sons again, give attention to my wisdom. We've talked about that a lot the last couple chapters, but now we're moving into a section, as Chaz told us last week, that we're going to see some very practical applications of this. How are you going to live in wisdom? How are you going to give attention to wisdom? He says, you need to incline your ear to my understanding. The idea is... um, Uh, Most of you are parents. You've ever had a time when you were talking to your child and they started to walk away from you before you were done talking to them? And you're like, hey, come back here, right? Okay, that's the idea here. That's the opposite. So inclining your ear is the opposite of turning away, okay? You need to come closer to hear the instruction. We need to incline our ear to what God has for us in Proverbs 5. Proverbs 5, verse 2, he goes on. That you may observe discretion and your lips may reserve knowledge. So why do they need to listen to this wisdom? It's so that they can observe discretion. The idea is is they are going to keep, they are going to abide by and live by and watch over these things. What is discretion? It's an interesting word. It actually comes from the idea of putting together a plan, putting together a strategy or having a purpose. He says, you need to listen to me so that you can be the one who is actually putting into, uh, putting into practice a plan for your life. You're not just wandering around all over, not knowing what you're doing. You have a path to follow. And then he goes even further and he says, so that your lips may reserve knowledge. He says, not only do you need to live this way, you need to understand these things so well that you are actually the one teaching it. You are the one articulating why you are living the way you're living you are able to explain and speak to others what wisdom really is. One of the commentaries says, this is concerning wisdom's practical value. It it enables one to act with discretion, that is to live a carefully disciplined life, but it also inspires wholesome conversation. The lips will talk of the knowledge that has been received. So the question for you and for me, the application here is, are we so entrenched in God's wisdom that not only does it affect the way we live our lives, but it affects the things that we talk about and how we explain our lives to other people and encourage them to live their lives as well? Or even uh, maybe more personally, are we preaching that truth to ourselves? Are we using the wisdom of God that we know in our minds and hearts and are we reminding ourselves of that consistently? When verse 2, Solomon talks about the lips that would reserve knowledge. We need to have, use our mouths for speech that is wise and godly. But in verse 3, he turns to a different set of lips, and he talks about the lips of an adulteress. Uh, the word literally means strange woman. One commentary says, this, this adulteress is anyone who is not the wife of the one under consideration. <clears throat> so it applies, it's, it goes on, it, it applies to all sinful relationships and any kind of casual sex. Broader than that, I think you can say that this adulteress here, this picture that we're going to see in the next couple chapters, really is a picture of all kinds of sexual sin and temptation that we can fall into. You notice how Solomon starts, he says, the lips of that Woman, the lips of an adulteress, they drip honey. 
You know, the picture is pretty easy to see, right? And it's not necessarily a bad thing. Solomon uses the picture in Song of Solomon 4 to talk about his own wife, his bride, and says that your lips, my bride, drip honey. Honey and milk are under your tongue. It's a good thing. It's, it's sweet. You are sweet to me. But notice that he goes on in verse 3 that smoother than oil is her speech. Smoother than oil is her speech. Some have taken this verse to talk about her physical allure, her, her kisses are sweet, but we notice there, smoother than oil is what? It's her speech, right? It's the things that she's talking about. They're, they're slippery, they're smooth, they're, they, they go over well. well what is that? that? That's not physical allure, that's flattery, right? That's using her words to tempt and to seduce. In verse 16, uh, back in chapter 2, verse 16, it tells us that this strange woman, this adulteress, she's one who flatters with her words. Or in Psalm 55, verse 21, it's talking about the man who doesn't fear God, the one who's an enemy of God. It says, his speech is smoother than butter, but his heart is war. His words are softer than oil, yet they are drawn swords. You see, Solomon is comparing this woman, this, this personification of, of sexual sin or even an embodiment of this temptation, that she is one who hates God. She uses her words for flattery and seduction, but her heart is not right. We see that in verse 4. In the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Wormwood is a, a little plant-like shrub. It has a, a noticeably bitter taste. God compares poison and wormwood often when he pronounces judgment on his people. Maybe you remember in Ruth chapter 1 when Naomi comes back and everything that she's had has been taken away from her. She returns to the land with just Ruth and she says, don't call me Naomi, call me, does anybody remember? Mara. Why? Because I am bitter. The Lord has dealt bitterly with me. That's the same word here. This wormwood is bitter. Ecclesiastes 7.26, Solomon writes a similar statement and he says, I discovered more bitter than death is the woman whose heart is snares. Her heart is snares. Or here it says, she is sharp as a two-edged sword. Her, her intent is not to satisfy with the sweet words. It's rather to hurt, to injure, to kill with a deadly weapon. Engaging with this woman or engaging in this kind of activity is death. And he says that in verse 5. Her feet go down to death. Her steps take hold of Sheol. Uh, interestingly, it says her steps take hold of. That's an idea of, of focusing on individual steps. Everything she does, or in this case, every act of sexual sin and temptation works its way toward death says she takes hold of Sheol. She is, she is a friend of the grave. Solomon says this several times in Proverbs 7.27, her house is the way to Sheol. Proverbs 9.18 says that her guests are in the depths of Sheol. Proverbs 2.18, her house sinks down to death and her tracks lead to the dead. If you follow this kind of woman, this kind of activity, you will find yourself in the grave. It is a path towards death. Verse 6 says, She does not ponder the path of life. Her ways are unstable, and she does not know it. Now, there's actually two ways to take this, 
this verse. One, uh, the translation is a little bit difficult, and you can ask Bo why later, because I don't know. But one way is, is it could be talking about her. She is the one who doesn't ponder the path of life. But it could also be translated in such a way that she is causing you to do these things. The temptress is causing you to do this. So she doesn't allow you to ponder the path of life. And she makes your ways unstable and you don't even know it. So that's true. It could be true that, that someone is so, the, this sexual sin is so seductive and so tempting that you don't even know that you're going down this path of death. That is possible. But I think in context, it reads better as, as it's translated in the NASB. She doesn't ponder the path of life. She is different than what we've been talking about. We've been talking about the path of life is the way of wisdom, the way of honoring God and walking the way he tells us. This is not that. And she doesn't think that. She thinks completely differently. She doesn't consider her way to be the path of wisdom. She is living a different way entirely. Her ways are, are unstable. It's the idea of wandering around, roaming aimlessly. And then this is the scariest part. It says, she does not know it. We saw that even back in chapter 4 last week. The way of the wicked is like darkness. They do not know over what they stumble. Have you ever met someone, I'm, I'm sure you have, someone who is an unbeliever and someone who, who their life seems to be falling apart around them, nothing is going the way they want, and you ask them why, and they say, I don't know. And they can't see that their horrible choices over a long period of time have brought them down to this place, right? Maybe you've been there yourself at one point. The wicked don't even know over what they stumble. She doesn't even know that her way is a completely opposite way of the way of wisdom. She is so dead in her sins, or in this case, the sexual sin is so apart from it, it's completely unclear to us. So the question for you and me, looking at that first point there, the promise that she gives, the, the lips that are dripping honey and smoother than oil, Sexual sin always sounds good. It always promises more than it can deliver, but it's just too good to be true. The promises, the flattery, the seduction of sexual sin is not something that is good for you. It's just sweet-tasting poison. That's all it is. Solomon warns his sons, you can't just look at the sweetness you have to look farther than that. You have to go deeper and see that on the inside, it's bitter and it's death. The second warning that Solomon gives is the majority of the chapter here. And he says, this, the second warning concerning sexual sin is he says, Sons, the cost is simply too high to pay. The cost is too high to pay. And then he's going to go through and he's going to describe the, the things that it will cost if we engage in sexual sin. The first major category is that he tells us it will cost us God's normal blessings in our lives. It will cost you God's normal blessings of life. See that in verses 7 to 14. Let's read those. Now then, my sons, listen to me. Do not depart from the words of my mouth. Keep your way far from her and do not go near the door of her house or you will give your vigor to others and your years to the cruel one. And strangers will be filled with your strength and your hard-earned goods will go to the house of an alien and you groan at your final end when your flesh and your body are consumed. 
And you say, how I have hated instruction and my heart spurned reproof. I have not listened to the voice of my teachers nor inclined my ear to my instructors. I was almost in utter ruin in the midst of the assembly and congregation. He says, sons, listen. It's the idea of listening with the intent to obey. Listen and follow what I have to say. He says, do not depart from the words of my mouth. We actually saw this same word back in chapter 4, verse 24, when we talked about putting away the deceitful speech, right? Putting away devious speech from us. It's the same idea. And Solomon says, you put away devious speech, but don't put away the things I'm telling you. Don't, don't depart from the words of my mouth, of the wisdom I'm sharing here. Verse 8, he calls his sons to, to be careful, to flee temptation. He says, keep your way far from her and do not go near the door of her house. Keep, keep your way far. It's, keep at a distance. Keep a separation between you and her. 1 Corinthians 6.18, Paul says, flee immorality. That's the idea. He says, don't go near. Don't even approach the door of her house. Stay away from temptation as far as you can. Matthew Henry, in his commentary, says this means two things. One, it means that we ought to have a very great dread and detestation of sin. We must fear it as we would fear a place infected with the plague. If you thought that there was death in that house, then stay far away from it. Number two, he says we ought industriously to avoid every single thing that may be an occasion for this sin or even a step towards it. Those that would be kept from harm must keep out of harm's way. If you don't want to get burned, don't touch the fire. If you don't want to fall into sexual sin, flee temptation. Flee sin and temptation. So the question for you and me, and let's get very practical with our application, is what is the thing in your life that you need to start moving away from quickly, that you need to flee from, even if that thing is not direct sexual sin, if it causes you to go there? If it leads you down that path, if it tempts you towards that, what do you need to give away? Maybe it's you don't need to have internet access at your house. Maybe it's you need to cancel some subscription. Maybe it's you need to break off a relationship at work or with a friend. Whatever those things may be, we are told clearly here from the scripture that we cannot even approach the door of the house. We stay away as if it was the plague. Why? And this is where we get into Solomon's warning. Why? Because the cost is too high. It's not worth it. Look at these things that, that it will cost you to be involved in sexual sin. Verse 9, you will give your vigor to others and your years to the cruel one. It costs you your time and energy of your life. He says, if you do this, if you engage in this kind of activity, it, you are giving your vigor, your, it actually says your splendor, your honor. Well, what does it in Proverbs say? The honor of young men is their strength, right? It's your vitality. It's your life force. You're, you're giving away your energy. And then the second half says, and your years to the cruel one. You are giving away the life that God has given you to others. 
It says, to the cruel one. People aren't exactly sure uh, who these people are. In verse 9, verse 10, it talks about the strangers. Maybe these are people related to this, this adulteress, this prostitute. Uh, maybe it's her, her jealous husband. And when we see in Proverbs 7, this lady has a husband. Maybe it's her master. Or maybe it's other people who are involved in this kind of activity, this sin. We're not sure. But regardless, you see the point that engaging in sexual sin, you are giving away the best years of your life giving it away to people who are cruel and who hate God. Proverbs 31.3 reminds us, do not give your strength to women or your ways to that which destroys kings. The price is too high. The cost is too high. It costs you your time and energy. Verse 10, it costs you your possessions. Strangers will be filled with your strength and your hard-earned goods will go to the house of an alien. Uh, the idea of your strength there is your ability, your, your working power, what you're able to produce. And then it says your hard-earned goods. That's, that's what you get for your labors. You're going to go to work. You're going to work hard. And what you're going to get, you're going to give away to these people who are evil and strangers and aliens to God. Proverbs 29.3, he who keeps company with harlots wastes his wealth. Getting involved in a pattern of sexual sin not only will cost you your time and energy, but ultimately it costs you your possessions. It costs you the wealth that God has provided for you to live your life with, and you are giving it away to people who hate God. Look at verse 11. You groan at your final end when your flesh and your body are consumed. What does that cost? What would you, what would you call that? Hmm? Your health. It's just that simple. Being involved in these kinds of patterns of sin, you groan at your final end. When you come to the end, and it says your flesh and body are consumed, it literally says they are finished. When your flesh and your body are done, when you come to the end of your life. So what is he talking about here? Well, worst case scenario, he's talking about you dying from some kind of disease or STI that you get because of this kind of activity. Here's the scary part. Best case scenario, you don't die from that. You die at the end of your life having wasted your entire life involved in these things. That's the best case scenario. If you are involved in this kind of sexual sin in a, as a, an ongoing pattern of your life and you are not fighting against it, Best case, you will come to the end and you will groan on your deathbed knowing that you wasted your life. The next couple, I had to switch around the way that I said them because I wanted to make sure we captured what the verse says. So it costs us our time and energy, our possessions and our health if we're involved in these things, but it leaves something behind. Verses 12 and 13 Verse 12, you say, how I have hated instruction and my heart spurned reproof. What do you get on your deathbed? You get to say, I regret the rest of my life. I regret what I didn't do. I regret that I have hated instruction and my heart spurned reproof. I was, I was an enemy of what God was trying to teach me, it says. Proverbs 12, verse 1 says that he who hates reproof is stupid. Psalm 107.11 says that these people are the ones who have spurned the counsel of the Most High. And Proverbs 129 says they hated knowledge. 
If you are involved in this kind of activity and this kind of sin over your life, you're going to come to the end of your life and you're going to say, what a waste. I hated what God told me to do. Verse 13, I have not listened to the voice of my teachers nor inclined my ear to my instructors. I, I didn't listen. I didn't obey what I was told. I didn't bring my ear close to understand what was being taught me. I ignored it. I didn't pay attention. I wasn't careful. It says, I didn't listen to the voice of my teachers. It's a very interesting word because it's only used a couple of times in the Old Testament. And every time, you know who it's referring to? It's referring to God who is the teacher. I think there's an implication here that Solomon says, this isn't just not listening to my parents and not listening to my friends who are trying to guide me in good counsel. This is me not listening to God himself who has instructed how I should live my life. It leaves regret. The expositor's commentary says, the condemned conscience realizes only too late that instruction and reproof have been ignored. You notice that he says, I, I hated knowledge, I hated instruction. Uh, just to be clear, you realize sin makes you very, very stupid. When you are involved in patterns of sin, you are not thinking clearly. You are not thinking biblically. You are not thinking as God designed you to think. Sin makes you very, very stupid. You are very foolish. And so when you come to the end of your life, are you going to say, I hated all the instruction I was given? Or are you going to say, I worked really hard to abide by the truth and the wisdom that God gave me? It leaves behind regret, and it leaves behind exposure and shame. Verse 14, I was almost in utter ruin in the midst of the assembly and congregation. Uh, the idea here is very clear. Being involved in this kind of sexual sin is, is ultimately going to lead to public shame and exposure. There's, there's no hiding this kind of thing. Matthew Poole kind of paraphrases the, this way. He says, I, who I had designed and expected to enjoy my lust with secrecy and impunity, I am now made a public example and shameful spectacle to all men. What would it cost you if everything that you looked at, everything that you watched, everything that you thought about was shown to the public assembly, to the congregation of people? What would that feel like? What kind of shame would there be? We must fight and flee sexual sin so that we are not in utter ruin in the midst of the congregation. The reality is, Solomon tells his sons, the cost is simply too high to pay. Sexual sin is not worth it. It seems tempting, but it promises more than it can offer. It'll cost you what God has given you in your life. Look at these things. This is your life, your time and your energy, your possessions, your health, your reputation. That is you. And Solomon says it will all be taken away if you abide by these things, if you live in this pattern of sin. Secondly, he tells us that it will cost you God's good design for sex. The reality is that you are missing out on something even better than what you are after. Proverbs 5, verse 15 to 19, he says, Drink water from your own cistern and fresh water from your own well. Should your springs be dispersed abroad, streams of water in the streets, let them be yours alone and not for strangers with you. 
Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. As a loving hind and a graceful doe, let her breast satisfy you at all times. Be exhilarated always with her love. Solomon tells his sons, if you go after this sexual sin, ultimately you are forfeiting the alternative that is so much better. It will cost you God's good design for sex. So the question is, what is God's good design for sex? Well, first, we see that it has to be exclusive. God's design for sex and marriage is that it is exclusive. Look at verse 15. Drink water from your own cistern and fresh water from your own well. Uh, the, the metaphor, the picture is very clear, right? You should drink from your water, not from your neighbor's water. And the idea of a cistern, it's, it's a big pit that has, uh, as the rains would come, it would gather the rainwater, and then you would have that fresh water to drink from. You can imagine being in an agricultural society, but also in sometimes a very arid climate, water is a good thing. You should have your own water, and you should drink from your own cistern, from your own well on your property. Solomon uses this imagery again in Song of Solomon 4, verses 12 to 15. He talks about his bride. She is a garden locked, a spring sealed up, a well of fresh water. Verse 16 asks the question, Should your springs be dispersed abroad, streams of water in the street. <laughs> the picture, again, is very clear. Should you take your good, fresh water that you have stored up for your health, and should you spill it into the street so that anyone else can have it, and it gets dirty and corrupted? Should it be dispersed? It's the idea of being scattered. This is the same word when, when God scatters the people at, at, Mount, uh, at the Tower of Babel. In Genesis 11, he scatters them across the whole earth. This is not that you're just sharing a little bit. This is, it's everywhere. It's out there. The idea here, look at verse 16. He says, streams of water in the streets. The streets is, is the town square, the plaza. This is the difference between having a private source of water and a community source of water. And now apply that to the marriage relationship. Do you understand? Do you understand where we're going? Is this a private thing or is this a community thing that anyone can take a part of? Solomon says, why would you do that? Verse 17, let it be yours alone. Let this water, let them be yours alone and not for strangers with you. You know, the, one of the arguments uh, back against the, the Judeo-Christian value, what the Bible teaches us about sex and marriage is, well, that just, that confines me. I don't have freedom with that. The reality is that, that marriage does not confine sex. Marriage protects sex. Okay? Like in the same way that if a, a benevolent king had a city and that city was under siege by attackers and all the townspeople in his city, he was protecting them with his guards on the walls and all the people in the city said, it feels like we're in a cage here. You never let us out. No, I'm not letting you out because that is danger and death for you. Marriage is a good thing that protects what God has given in a good gift of sex. Or maybe another illustration is you think of like a nuclear reactor. This machinery is keeping this massive amount of power in check and is harnessing it for good. What happens if that power gets out of what is supposed to be? It's devastation and death. Marriage is what God has designed to protect the good gift of sex for the people that are in that relationship. Hebrews 13.4 Marriage is to be held in honor among all, and the marriage bed is to be undefiled. For fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. 
In addition to all the things that, that this will cost you, if you're not willing to abide by God's standard for sex, ultimately God is going to judge your sin. If, that was, if you had no other reason, if you thought that you could live your life however you wanted, recognize that God will not have it. God will judge those who violate his standards. So sex needs to be exclusive in marriage. And, and let's, let me, give me just a second to be very clear about that. Sex is exclusive to marriage between a husband and wife. That means that there should be no premarital sex, no extramarital sex, adultery, affairs. There should be no pornography, whether that's on the internet, print, movies, TV. Maybe you need to stop following some social media accounts that you've been following, going to the websites that you shouldn't be going to. It means avoiding any kind of coarse jesting or any kind of explicit discussion with people who are not your spouse. It frankly means that you need to fight against sin in your own sinful patterns of thinking and patterns of self-pleasure. It means all of that. God says that sex in marriage must be exclusive between the husband and the wife. Matthew 5, 27 to 30. Jesus himself, you have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you. For it's better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. Uh, I've counseled different guys over the years, and, and what's the pushback? Oh, I, can't, I can't live without a cell phone. I can't, I can't do my job without internet access. And I say, okay, you need a different job. Uh, you need to live without a cell phone. Why? Because this is the path to death. This is sin that God will judge in the last day. And either you're going to fight against that sin no matter what it takes and prove that you are an overcomer that is, is desiring to honor Christ, or you're going to live in that pattern of sin with no regret and no repentance, and ultimately you're going to be judged for eternity for that. There is no question here. We have to fight against sexual sin. And if for no other reason, that we're giving up God's good design. It costs what God has given us. Sex and marriage must be exclusive. Number two, and kind of number two and three. Know that sex is good and necessary in marriage. Verse 18. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. Let your fountain, let your, your spring, your source of water, that is a good thing. If you have a source of water, if you have the cistern to drink from, it's a good thing. It's a favor from God. It is a blessing on you. It's necessary and good. You remember back in Genesis chapter 2, verse 24? For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become what? One flesh. Is that an option? They might become one flesh. They might if they agree to it. No. They will become one flesh. Marriage, sex and marriage is necessary. And then verse 25, the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. It's good. It's good in the sight of God. He says, rejoice. Literally, be merry. Be glad in the wife of your youth. That is a command, by the way. Obviously, it's, it's intended for his son, so a masculine, but it goes both ways. Husbands and wives, you are to rejoice. You are commanded to be glad in the physical relationship with your spouse. Does God really care about my wife? And the answer is yes. Malachi 2.14, the Lord has been a witness against you between you and the wife of your youth. She is your companion and your wife by covenant. 
God does care how you treat your spouse. Matthew Henry sums up this section of how sex is a good thing in the context of marriage. He says, The allowed pleasures of marriage far transcend all the false forbidden pleasures of whoredom. There is no reason to go after sexual sin if it will cost us what is good in the sight of God. Number three, sex and marriage ought to be mutual and consistent. Notice verse 19, as a loving hind and a graceful doe, let her breast satisfy you at all times, be exhilarated always with her love. Uh, a loving hind, maybe better, a, a lovely hind. It's describing a doe of a fallow deer, uh, a graceful doe, that's a female mountain goat. These were pictures in the ancient world of, of delicate features, of tenderness. And so this is a picture, and we'll see it again in Song of Solomon, uh, chapter 4 and chapter 7, verse 3. Your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle. Uh, when the husband looks at his wife and her body, he sees that this is a soft, tender, delicate thing to be enjoyed. Let her breasts satisfy you at all times. The satisfy, it's the idea of drinking to one's fill. Not drinking until you're not thirsty anymore, but drinking until you can't drink anymore. You are saturated Solomon tells his sons, when you are in this loving relationship with your wife, you are to be saturated with her love, with her body, with her physical affection. So notice that it needs to be mutual here. Look at, at this, uh, let her breast satisfy you as a loving hind and a graceful doe. You see this, this is not, this is not um, uh, aggressive talk here. This is kindness and tenderness, that they are helping one another to, to love one another. Song of Solomon 7.10, I am my beloved's and his desire is for me. 1 Corinthians 7, verses 3 and 4, the husband must fulfill his duty to his wife and likewise also the wife to her husband. The reality is that God has designed sex and marriage to be a, a team effort. It is to be selfless. The, the point of sex is not to be served, but to serve your spouse well. It's a mutual love. But notice also that it's to be consistent. Verse 19, at all times, be exhilarated always. This is the idea of, of regularly or continually. Now, notice I didn't say constant. I said consistent. Some of us are not as young as we once were, okay? But the reality is that a, a healthy marriage will have a consistent physical relationship between the husband and wife. 1 Corinthians 7, 5 talks about this. Stop depriving one another except by agreement for a time so you may devote yourselves to prayer. If this is not to be a consistent pattern in your marriage, there ought to be very good biblical reasons for it, is Paul's point. One commentary says, speaking in God's name here, Solomon shows how greatly God desires our happiness in marriage as well as our faithfulness. The love of one partner need not be dull, but enjoyable, satisfying, even captivating. So, clear application. If you are married, you are to enjoy your spouse consistently. That is the idea. You are to put away sexual sin and you are to enjoy the better alternative, what God has given as a good gift as sex and marriage. So then the question comes, what if you are not married? And we have several of those in our class and in our church. If you are not married, well, the Bible talks about a gift of singleness, someone who does not need to be in this kind of relationship, but rather is happy and blessed to serve with their full time and life and energy the things of God. That could be an option. But if you are not, 
married and you are not feel that you are gifted for a season of singleness, then the question is, are you carefully and appropriately pursuing marriage to a godly spouse so that you can enjoy the good gift of sex that God has given? No matter what, and this is why it's framed this way in this, in this chapter, is this is obviously praising and glorifying God for his good gift of sex and marriage, but the point is this, is that is something that you are costing yourself, potentially, if you are engaged in sexual sin. Which brings us to the third warning that Solomon has for his sons. First, sexual sin is always, it always promises more than it can deliver. It's always too good to be true. The cost is always too high. It's not worth it. And then, number three, the excuses are simply lies that you tell yourself. Let's put these up here. My iPad might die in a minute, so we'll see how it goes, okay? Chapter 5, verse 20 to 23. Why should you, my son, be exhilarated with an adulteress and embrace the bosom of a foreigner? For the ways of a man are before the eyes of the Lord, and he watches all his paths. His own iniquities will capture the wicked, and he will be held with the cords of his, in, of his sin. He will die for lack of instruction, and in the greatness of his folly, he will go astray. So Solomon starts this section by asking a question. With all that in mind of how great the cost is, why, why would you go down that path, and why would you try to be satisfied or, or, or captivated with an adulteress, with a strange woman, when you could be captivated with the wife of your youth? Why would you do that? Why would you go? Matthew Poole uh, wrote in his commentary, why will, you go, uh, why will you destroy and damn thyself for your delights, which, may in you, which you may enjoy without sin or danger? <laughs> you see, you can enjoy those same delights in the context of a biblical marriage and not be in danger from them. I noticed here that as you read the, the last couple verses, it seems like Solomon is just tacking on a few more warnings, a few more consequences that he should have mentioned earlier. But as I read it, I realized he's not actually adding on more things to the list earlier. He is addressing the excuses that we have all had at one time or another when we wanted to engage in sin of a sexual nature. One, lie number one, no one has to know. Isn't that it? We, we think that we can be, be hidden, we can be private with our actions in this way. Job 24 verse 15 says, The eye of the adulterer waits for the twilight, saying that no one will see me. And he disguises his face. There's a reason why your mom told you nothing good happens after midnight. It's true. But we think that if we're going to engage in sexual sin, well, that's okay, just no one has to know. I'll keep it to myself. Solomon says, no, the ways of a man are before the eyes of the Lord. Your life is on display in front of God. Proverbs 15.3, the eyes of the Lord are in every place watching the evil and the good. Jeremiah 16.17, for my eyes are on all their ways. They are not hidden from my face, nor is their iniquity concealed from my eyes. Please know, if you did not know this already, your sin is always in front of God. He sees it. You are not doing anything in secret. But interestingly, the second half of this verse says something a little bit different. He says, the ways of a man are before the eyes of the Lord, and he watches all his paths. And you think that's, he's just saying it again, but he's not. The word for watches is the same one back up in verse 6 where it says the adulteress doesn't ponder the way of life. She doesn't consider it. She doesn't weigh things in her mind. Here it says God watches or, or he considers, he, he weighs the path 
He weighs your path. What is that? God is making decisions. He is interacting with you and your life based on what you are doing. He's not just watching from a distance. He's not just watching to see what's going to happen. He is actively involved here. He is considering what you are doing. Hosea 7.2, they don't consider in their hearts that I remember all their wickedness. Jeremiah 29.23, they have acted foolishly in Israel and have committed adultery with their neighbor's wives. He says, I am he who knows and I am a witness. And then in 32.19 of Jeremiah, whose eyes are open to all the ways of the sons of men, giving to everyone according to his ways and according to the fruit of his deeds. God deals with you according to the way you live your life. Hebrews 4.13, There is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Matthew Henry says, He will call the sinner to an account for it, for he not only sees, but he ponders all of his goings. He judges concerning them as one that will shortly judge the sinner for them. Every action is weighed. So, how do we respond to that? Well, one, we need to stop telling ourselves the lie that no one's going to know if I just do this in a certain way or in a certain place or at a certain time. The reality is that's not true because God watches all. The other thing we need to respond to that is if we are in those patterns of sin, if we are trying to keep something hidden, we need to repent immediately because God weighs that. He considers what you are doing and he reacts. You need to repent immediately and ask forgiveness when you sin. The second lie that we tell ourselves when we want to be involved in sexual sin is, I can stop whenever I want. I can stop whenever I like. But Solomon says, no, verse 22, his own iniquities will capture the wicked and he will be held with the cords of his sin. His own guilt, his own sin will capture him. That's the idea of, of trapping an animal in a snare. You will be trapped. You will be captured, or it's also used of enemies taking captives from a city that they have conquered. You will be captured by what? By your own sin. <laughs> by the cords of your sin, you will be held. You, you will be tied up. It, it's like you are in bondage and in chains to the sin that you have. The Bible calls that enslaving sin. The reality is, if you are in a consistent pattern of sexual sin with no desire for repentance or regret, then you are, in capt you are captivated, you, are, you are, are enslaved to that sin. Psalm 7 verse 15 says, The wicked one has dug a pit and hollowed it out and fallen into the hole which he made. Proverbs 23, 27 says the same thing about the harlot. A harlot is a deep pit, and an adulterous woman is a narrow well. Sexual sin is an easy hole to fall into and a hard one to get out of. It is not the kind of thing where you can just turn it off and stop whenever you like. No, if you have given up your freedom to this kind of sin, you are enslaved to it. Sin ensnares and ties a person down like with ropes, the Bible Knowledge Commentary says. People talk, <laughs> it goes on, People like to talk about being free to sin however they wish, but sin actually takes away that freedom. So if you are in a pattern of sin, what do you need to do? You need to repent immediately. You need to ask God to change your heart and to give you the ability to fight that sin. 
You need to come to a friend who is a godly, uh, godly counselor to you who will help you, who will encourage you to fight against that sin. It's not the kind of thing that you can just turn off whenever you want. You would be enslaved to it, but you can be free from it by the grace of God. The lie number three that we tell ourselves often is, well, in the end, it's pretty much harmless. This isn't affecting anyone else. This isn't bothering anyone. But Solomon says no. Verse 23, he will die for lack of instruction. And the greatness of his folly, he will go astray. He will die because he, he has no instruction. Well, is it true that we haven't been instructed? No, he's repeating what the man said on his deathbed, that he had instruction and he hated it. He rejected it. He turned away. And he said, in the greatness of his folly, he will go astray. He will stagger as if he's drunk until he falls off a cliff. Proverbs 10.21, fools die for lack of understanding. Matthew Poole said, he shall die in his sins and not repent of them as he designed and hoped to do before his death. Isn't that it? When we're young and we think that we have all of our life ahead of us, well, I'm going to sin for a while and I'll be a Christian later. I'll repent of my sins. I'll get my act together when I'm in college or when I get married or when I have children or when I get the next promotion or when I retire. I'll get really serious about the things of the Lord. And Solomon says, you don't get to decide that because one of these days you are going to die in your sin because you've rejected this instruction. So as you consider your own heart this morning, we have these warnings before us. The question is, do you have a desire to repent and to change and to walk away from the temptation to sexual sin in your life or not? If not, you need to know that you're not in Christ and you need to repent of your sins for the first time and believe in Jesus Christ and he will not only save you from the penalty of your sins, he will free you from the power of your sins. If you are in Christ, we must turn away. We must heed the warnings that Solomon has given, that the Word has given us this morning. We can't be like those townspeople that say, yeah, 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 I've heard this before. I've heard this sermon before. Yeah, I know that's a big problem. And we're not careful. It will lead to our own destruction if we're not careful. Romans chapter 13, verses 12 to 14. We'll finish up. The night is almost gone, and the day is near. Therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy. You see what Paul says? Why, why do we live lives of purity? Because the night is almost gone and the day is near. The clock's ticking. We only have so much farther to run. We're so close. Don't give up now. Verse 14. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. So are we going to heed the warning of Solomon to his sons, of, of the scripture to us, that sexual sin, it always promises and it's too good to be true. The cost is simply too high to pay. It's never worth it. And any excuse you can come up with is simply a lie you're telling yourself. Don't do it. Don't walk down the path of sexual sin. Don't, don't go anywhere near the adulteress's house. Rather, fight for purity and for honor and enjoy the good gifts that God has given us in this life. Let's pray.
God, we're thankful for your, your word. We're thankful for the time to study it. And we pray that as we've considered these things this morning, that we would be careful to fight against sin and temptation, to flee them, and to desire to live lives of righteousness and purity and hope. Because the night is almost gone. The day is near. Therefore, let us behave properly as in the day. And let us put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for these things in your name. Amen.